we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And uh, this morning, we are just going to kind of dip our toes in Mark chapter 13 and look at the first two verses of Mark chapter 13. Uh, Well, some time ago, I, I saw a list of the top 25 most controversial subjects on college campuses right now. It was a list of, you know, some of the most contested and argued over issues on campuses across the U.S. today. Uh, Top among the 25 was gun control, uh, which surprised me, not because of its being on the list, but because of its being so high on the list. Uh, And and many of the issues weren't surprising at all. They were issues you you could probably guess, issues like climate change and vaccines and Israeli-Palestinian conflict, cancel culture, uh, and, and many others you could probably guess. These are these, these issues around which there just doesn't seem to be much of a consensus on college campuses, and so it's controversial to bring them up. Now, I wonder if you were to take a similar survey of the most contested subjects in churches or, or perhaps even seminaries across the United States, I wonder if interpretation of Mark 13 would be on that list, uh, possibly high on that list. Uh, I'm mostly joking, but it's, it's a joke with a point, uh, there's just not much of a consensus around how to interpret the chapter of Scripture we're going to spend the next five Sundays working our way through. Some Christians believe that this chapter we're about to spend the next five weeks unpacking is all about events surrounding the final judgment and the, the return of Christ at the end of the age. Some Christians believe that this entire chapter is all about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. Some Christians believe that this chapter is actually all about Passion Week, and in particular, the the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Some Christians believe that this uh, chapter should be interpreted as a sort of mix of those various interpretations. And no matter what interpretation you do take, there's always some kind of question that can be hard to answer Uh, depending on your interpretation, if someone was to put to you, it would be hard to answer. And oftentimes, these different interpretations can be found within groups of people who have the same theology, who coexist in the same traditions and even the same churches. Oftentimes, these different interpretations will even be found among those on the same elder teams, like it does here. Our elders are not in full agreement about how to interpret this chapter of Scripture. Of course, we we believe in in what's called the perpescuity of of Scripture. We believe that the Scriptures are clear in their overall message and emphasis, but that doesn't mean that every passage of Scripture is equally clear. There are some passages of Scripture that are not entirely clear, and this is one of them. And so there are differing interpretations. And so I come to this chapter here with some trepidation. I I, I must always tremble before God's Word because of who God is and because of what His Word is. I I always tremble as I come into the pulpit in that sense. But there's an added weight here in the knowledge of my being tasked with preaching this chapter in a biblically faithful manner and in a way that honors the authority of the elders at this church and in a way that doesn't just seek to satisfy the, our, our vain curiosities about this chapter, but in a way that preaches truth to the consciences of those present, and all but with, with this all but certain knowledge that there's just not going to be much of a consensus on this chapter among us. There's a good chance that that's the case. 
And so with that said, let me, let me just say a few things about our aim in being in this chapter over the next five Sundays. First, we want to interpret this chapter with proper humility, understanding that we could very well be wrong about its interpretation. Now, Jesus isn't wrong. Mark 13 isn't wrong. The Bible's never wrong, but we can be wrong in our interpretation of it. And that's always, that's never more evident than when we're in particularly difficult to understand texts like this. Second, with that proper humility, we're not going to let differing interpretations divide or cause quarreling among us as a church. For those who have so much in common in Christ, ultimate things in common in Christ, we won't let some smaller interpretive differences breed division. Third, we're not going to engage in vain curiosities over the next five weeks. The, the point of this passage is not so that we can fill out our end times charts or speculate over news events, wondering if this means this news event means Christ is going to come back in the next five years, or the next five months, or the next five minutes, or anything like that. Instead, we, we are going to seek to expose the message of this chapter and then apply it to our consciences in a way that leads to faith in and fear of Christ. And finally, we're going to read and explore this chapter with a reverence and love for Jesus Christ who spoke these words so that we might stay awake in this present age and persevere in following him. And so with that said, you want to take your copy of Scripture. Again, we're going to be looking at Mark 13, verses 1 and 2. And these are, are crucial for setting the tone and, and the subject matter of the whole of this chapter, these two verses are. And so they have much to show us about Christ and about ourselves if we have eyes to see. And so if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of, of Holy Scripture, let's listen with reverence and joy to the Word of our God as Mark has recorded it for us here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we ask. Amen. You can be seated. Well, right away here, as Jesus came out of the temple, verse 1 here mentions a theme that has come up again and again for us since Mark 11, 1, the temple. The temple. And Jesus entered Jerusalem in the temple there in Mark 11. In Mark 11, as a sign of judgment against Jerusalem, in the temple, he cursed the fig tree and he overthrew tables in the temple. In Mark 11 and 12, he taught and debated and condemned many in the midst of the temple courtyards, and now he's exiting the, the temple. However, his dealing with the subject matter of the temple is not yet concluded, because as he leaves, one of his, one of his disciples, it doesn't say who, but one of his disciples says something to him, about the, the temple's magnificence and its magnitude. He says to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. In the, in the original, it literally just says, look, teacher, what stones and what buildings. The ESV translation is 
is fitting because really what the, the disciple is getting at is the, the magnificence and the magnitude of the stones and the buildings there at the temple. And, and if we were there, we might say for good reason. We would very much agree. History tells us that this temple was truly a sight to behold. It truly was, in one sense, magnificent. And one New Testament scholar says that the temple's beauty and size made some of even the seven wonders of the ancient world pale in comparison. In the, in the 1990s, there was an archaeological exploration of the temple site that discovered a stone that was 42 feet by 14 feet by 11 feet. It weighed 600 tons. The great Jewish historian Josephus, who, who was an eyewitness to the temple's destruction in 70 AD, he tells us that some of the stones were as large as 67 feet in length. These were massive stones. Herod the Great who had the temple built, ended up building a number of buildings and courtyards around the sanctuary itself, so that all in all, the temple was about a mile in circumference. The temple's enclosure took up 35 acres in the city. Some of the buildings were 15 stories high, and over top of it all, the temple was covered in a bright, shining gold roof and with white stones and gold trim so that looking at the temple from the Mount of Olives, it was said that you were to be blinded when the sun shone upon it. And yet even still, that doesn't quite capture the disciples' wonder at this sight. They weren't merely admiring Taurus as, as we might have been at that time. It's hard to overestimate how, how important the temple was to the believing Jew in the first century. It's, it's, it's religious and spiritual implications as well as its social and political implications would be hard for us to understand. It was the center of Judaism. It was the assumed sign of God's favor in Israel. It was the place of God's presence where Israel communed with God. It was the place where Israel's sins were seen to be atoned for. It was the place in which God's presence was mediated to the people through priest and sacrifice. And of course, this wasn't the original temple. Just to give you a little bit of history about the, the temple there, uh, the, the original temple built in Jerusalem was built by Solomon. You recall in, in biblical history how, how God initially dwelt among his people in a tent called the tabernacle from Exodus and Leviticus on until the reign of King David. And then after David's uh, reign came to an end, his son Solomon built the temple according to David's instructions. And of course, that temple was later destroyed at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar II and, and the Babylonian army not much later. Uh, the, the, the Persian king Cyrus II allowed exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. You can learn about that in Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And you can read there that, that they did rebuild the temple, although the, the temple was really just a shadow of its former self at that point. And eventually that temple was just so badly damaged that it just needed to be rebuilt in its entirety. And that's what Herod the Great began to do in 20 BC. And that's the temple Jesus and his disciples were looking at in our text. And it, what many looked at as impressive, as a magnificent testimony to God's favor and presence in Israel, Jesus looked upon as a den of thieves, as he said in Mark eleven seventeen. 17. So Jesus, in verse 2 here, he puts things in proper perspective for his disciples as he foretells the temple's destruction, as well as Jerusalem's destruction of the year 70 AD. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 2 here, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This was, of course, not the only time that 
Jesus foretold the temples and Jerusalem's destruction. It was, in fact, a, a fairly common feature in Christ's teachings, more prominent than we often think. He talked about the destruction of the temple uh, 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 quite a bit. And on this side of the temple's destruction in 70 AD, which happened 30 to 40 years after Jesus foretold this event and somewhere between 5 to 10 years after Mark wrote this, we know that Jesus' words and prophecies have been vindicated. In August and September of 70 AD, the Roman emperor Titus commanded his armies to invade and destroy the city and temple. And again, the, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, who was an eyewitness to those events, tells of the destruction after the fact. This is what he says about it. He says, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west to indicate to posterity. So he, he wanted to leave just parts of Jerusalem intact, all to indicate to posterity or those who would come later the nature of the city and of the strong defenses which had yet yielded to the Roman prowess. He wanted to show the strength of the city and its security that yet gave way to the strength and wisdom of the Roman army. All the rest of the wall, Josephus says, encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Jesus' words of prophecy have been fulfilled. The temple was destroyed, it was razed to the ground, and there's not one stone left upon another that had not been torn down. And that just begs the question, as we read this, why is this prophecy here? What, what was the purpose of the temple's destruction and of Jesus' foretelling of its destruction here in Mark 13? And, 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 and why did Mark record it for us here? If all scripture is written for our instruction, as 1 Corinthians 10, 11 puts it, if as 2 Timothy 3 puts it, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we might be complete and equipped for every good work, why is this here? For one, it's here to rebuke our interest in mere externals. To rebuke our interest in mere externals. The disciple who, who addressed Jesus here looked upon the temple with amazement, impressed by the stones and the gold and the buildings and the size, and truly, in one sense, it was all remarkable. But even more remarkable for us is Jesus' lack of being impressed. His lack of amazement, because he looked upon, when he looked upon that temple, he saw a den of robbers, not a glorious sign of God's favor. Not an indication of the strength and glory of Israel, but her depravity and rebellion. And what this is exp exposing here is that sometimes we are far too easily impressed. The great and prophetic preacher J.C. Ryle once wrote of this very passage that we are naturally inclined to judge things by outward appearance like children who love poppies more than corn. We are too apt to suppose that where there's a stately church building, in a magnificent ceremonial, carved stone and painted glass, fine music and gorgeously dressed ministers. There must be some real religion. And yet there may be no religion at all. It may be all form and show and appeal to the senses. There may be nothing to satisfy the conscience, nothing to cure the heart. It may prove on, on inquiry that Christ is not preached in that stately building. The word of God is not expounded. The ministers may be utterly ignorant of the gospel and the worshipers may be dead in trespasses and sins. We need not doubt that God sees no beauty in such a building as this. We would do well to remember this. 
So we live in a land wherein churches abound with resources and wealth. We're in many, many churchgoers, church shop, in order to, to select a church based on their preferences for buildings and programs and for the types of people who attend those churches and for ministries and music and ease of parking and comfort of seating, all the while, many so-called churches are void of the gospel and Bible and faith and godliness. And contrast that with many small and seemingly insignificant churches that are gathered throughout the 1040 window on this very Lord's Day. Some of them gathering in secret in small rooms with blinds closed because of fear of persecution. Sweat glistening the foreheads of those in attendance because because they, they, they walked miles to get there and are sitting in a room without air conditioning, sitting in circles on the floor, quietly singing hymns out of fear of being heard sitting with with Bibles open in their laps while a pastor expounds the truths of our faith and the hope of our everlasting life in Christ. Christ would look upon one with delight and not the other. While our eyes can all too easily be impressed with mere externals. Of course, there's nothing wrong with buildings. There's nothing wrong with... with There's nothing even wrong with beautiful and well-maintained church buildings. We hope to have a building ourselves one day. We desire to steward it well, as with anything God entrusts to us. The problem is not buildings or beauty. The problem is when those things take precedence over the gospel and over faith and the godliness of those who meet in the building. That's what Christ rebukes here. But then also, secondly, Christ foretells the temple's destruction here to remind us of the reality of God's judgment. To remind us of the reality of God's judgment. One of the items worth noting here is that the New Testament's prophecies concerning the temple's destruction, they don't merely treat it as a result of of Rome's control over the Middle East or the rising tensions between Rome and Israel there in the first century leading up to 70 AD. You can read about those things in history, and in one sense, those things are causes, but they are secondary causes to the temples in Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD, not the primary cause. The primary cause is God's judgment, Christ's judgment of Jerusalem and Israel. The New Testament treats the temples in Jerusalem's destruction as as an act of judgment by Jesus Christ himself. Later in Mark 14, 58, one of the charges that the Jews level against Christ in his trials, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. In Acts 6-4, before before they they killed Deacon Stephen, they said in a rage, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. These texts speak of the temple's destruction as a personal act of Jesus Christ himself. And of course, as we read this prophecy in Mark's gospel, we can't read it Apart from what we, we read earlier in Mark, Mark 12, 1 through 12, your eyes just want to kind of glance down the page there when Jesus spoke about this parable about keepers of a vineyard being destroyed by the vineyard's owner and the, the vineyard being given over to others. Why? Because the vineyard owner had sent messenger after messenger only to be ignored and eventually sent his very own son representing Christ whom they killed. And so the vineyard owner, they say, will destroy the keepers and give the vineyard to others. This parable is obviously speaking of the judgment of Jerusalem and the the kingdom being taken away from her. And and even more, what was veiled in in parable in Mark 12, Jesus 
plainly taught in Luke 19, 43 to 44. Look, look at what it says here. He says, for the days will come upon you, speaking to, to Israel, to Jerusalem, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And the temples... In Jerusalem's destruction, Jesus himself has brought judgment against Israel for ungodliness, for rejection of him as Messiah, for turning God's house into a den of thieves instead of a house of prayer for all peoples. This was an act of Christ's judgment. It's question and answer 18 in the New City Catechism puts it. Question, will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? Answer, no. God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. We see this clearly in Christ's prophecy. Of course, we we need to be careful here because these kinds of texts and teachings have been viewed as a cause or excuse for anti-Semitism in the past. Probably don't need to give you specific examples of this occurrence. But it's worth pointing out that anti-Semitism is an irrational and anti-biblical ideology for Christians. After all, our Savior, the one that we worship, is himself Jewish. All of the apostles whose teaching we humbly accept were Jewish. Jesus himself mourned and lamented over Israel's unrighteousness and its coming judgment in Matthew 23, 27. He didn't delight in their destruction. The Apostle Paul, he he lamented the same in Romans 9 as he longed for his brothers and sisters according to the flesh to be saved. He said he longed for Israel to be saved. At the end of the age, all of Israel will be saved, Paul tells us in Romans. There's a coming end time revival amongst Israel. And we want them to, to see and to savor and to love their Messiah. All this to say, we, we, we don't delight, no one delights in Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's rejection by God. Jesus, Paul, they mourned it. They did not hate Israel. They loved her. Anti-Semitism is anti-biblical. Friends, the, the, the call for us in light of Israel's and Jerusalem's judgment and rejection of the New Testament is so far from anti-Semitism. Instead, the call in light of this judgment is sobriety and humility. It's a call to sobriety and humility in light of God's just and impartial judgment. Uh, Romans 11, 20 through 22, the Apostle Paul speaks of Israel's judgment and rejection in startling terms. For us, he says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. This judgment and rejection should sober us into a true humility and dependence upon God's kindness. It should sober us to put our faith in Christ and to fear his uncompromising holiness. Now, perhaps as we talk about catastrophes and God's judgment, there's a lot going on in the world right now. We should note in light of this subject as it relates to the many calamities across the earth currently and over the last few years, it's a great temptation for human beings to look upon the calamities and catastrophes that others face and to watch the news and see all this and to wonder what caused such events to take place. 
Often there are certain groups of Christians that can look upon natural disasters and attacks and wars and other horrific events not dissimilar to the destruction of Jerusalem and make undiscerning speculative pronouncements about God's judgment and all the reasons these things took place. But it seems rather that the the pattern of Scripture isn't to look upon the calamities and catastrophes that others face and to speculate about why those things took place. We don't have insight into the secret will of God like Christ does here. And so the call instead is to look at such events, to, to sympathize with those suffering, to mourn with those who mourn, to help when we can, as it pertains to our passage here, to be sobered into contrition and repentance for our own sin. Find Jesus exhorting this exact kind of attitude in Luke 13. There were a number of people coming to Jesus and they were asking about these specific disasters and whether or not they were sent by God as retribution for the specific sins of specific people. And the Lord says to them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see what he's saying? He's saying, don't don't be preoccupied with trying to figure out whether or not these disasters were retribution for those who suffered them. Instead, he says, let these disasters sober you into repentance. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Great Puritan theologian John Owen, in his wonderful book on spiritual mindedness, he, he counsels us well in light of this teaching. That's not what he said. He said, the first thing a spiritually minded person thinks about is what God is saying to him in, his daily, in the daily circumstances of life, especially in light of great calamities and disasters. By every disastrous event, God calls men to repentance and to holiness. The spiritually minded person will make every effort to understand and to obey the call. And God is greatly provoked when men take no notice. When God brings about terrible disasters in the world, we must know how to come to a right understanding of what he is saying in them. I must first ask myself if God is saying something to me. I must diligently examine myself if there is any wickedness in me that has caused God to show his displeasure. See, we would do well in light of Christ's teaching here about Jerusalem's destruction to be sobered by the impartiality of God's judgment and to be sobered into contrition and humility and repentance for our own sins. Jesus foretold the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple to remind us of this reality, the reality of God's judgment. And then lastly, Jesus foretold this destruction in order to reveal to us the temple's fulfillment. And once since the temple was raised because its full purpose had now been realized, It was crushed because its purpose has been completed. The temple existed to foreshadow the greater temple to come. But now that the substance has come, the shadow is no longer necessary. Perhaps you saw this in in some of the texts I read just a moment ago in Mark 14, 58. We saw Jesus accused of saying, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. There he was referring to himself as the new temple. The new place wherein God and humanity meets. John 1, 43 to 51. 
We see their description of, of the events surrounding Jesus calling his disciples, Philip and, and Nathaniel, and, and in the process, he tells him some secret knowledge that he has of Nathaniel as he saw him sitting under a sycamore tree, and, and Nathan is amazed by this, and Jesus' response is this. He says, because of this, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You might say, that's a weird thing to say. What does that mean? That was a clear reference to Genesis 28 when Jacob laid down in his journeys and slept. And he had a dream when he laid down and slept wherein there was a ladder going up to heaven with angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth. And he called that place Bethel, meaning house of God, because he said God's presence was obviously there. Jesus says to Nathaniel and Philip, I am the true house of God. I am the place wherein heaven and earth overlap. I am the place wherein God dwells among humanity. I am the true temple. The Apostle John says this very thing earlier in John 1.12. In the beginning of John's gospel, John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, speaking of Christ. This Christ was with God, he is God, he was in the beginning with God, and then in John 1.12, he tells us that now the word became flesh, and literally the Greek says, and he was tabernacled among us. The word has become flesh. The Son of God has been tabernacled in human vesture. Jesus of Nazareth is to us. The house of God, he is God come to dwell among his people. He is our new meeting place with God. The center of life for God's people is no longer a place, it's a person, and his name is Jesus, and in him God has come to be with us. We no longer need a temple, we no longer need its priests and its sacrifices because Jesus is everything we need instead. In a sermon Dick Lucas once preached, he he winsomely showed forth this truth. He gave this kind of imaginary conversation between an early Christian and and uh, the, the, uh, the Christian's pagan neighbor, neighbor in Rome. And it, it goes something like this. He said, ah, oh, the, the neighbor says, I hear you're religious. That's great. Religion is a good thing. Where, where's your temple or your holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No, no temple, but where do your priests work and, and, and do their rituals? The Christian says, we don't have priests to mediate the presence of God. Jesus is our priest. No, priest, but but where do you offer sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? The Christian says, "We, we don't need a sacrifice because Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer, Lucas says, is that it's no kind of religion at all. God has done a new thing in Jesus of Nazareth, the Word made flesh. In Him, we don't need sacrifices to appease the justice of our God because Jesus is our sacrifice, and He is taking God's just judgment upon Himself for those who rest and depend on Him through faith. We don't need priests in a temple to mediate the presence of God to us because we have Jesus, the only mediator between God and humanity, the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. We don't need a temple. Jesus destroyed the temple because in him 
the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and he came to dwell among us to be our new meeting place with God. Friends, if you would have God's favor and kindness, if you would have his presence, and if you would have communion with him, all you must do is look to Jesus and find it there because he is all that we need. Let's pray. Father, we, we do ask that as this word has been given from Mark 13, 1 and 2, that you would sanctify us through it and prepare us to go into the world and to bear witness to the glories and grace of Jesus Christ to a world that is in need. Would you assure our hearts that Christ is enough for us? And would you sober us by the reality of the judgment that took place so long ago there in Jerusalem, sober us into humility and repentance before you, that we might be a humble and gracious and meek people, representing our, our humble and gracious and meek Savior well. In his name we ask and pray. Amen.